across the country. I'd like to thank the Foundation for the, um, for the Humanities, Virginia's Foundation for the Humanities, so much for their support for this meeting. Thank you to our local host co-chairman, Norman Burns and Paul Levengood, for their outstanding work partnering with sponsors and for assembling an exciting lineup of tours, evening events, outings, speakers, and sessions. Thank you so much for opening the doors to the great city of Richmond to all of us with AASLH. Our theme, Commemoration, the Promise of Remembrance and New Beginnings, asks us to examine perhaps the most visceral parts of history. Who to remember and how to remember is woven with the weft of emotions and the warp of historical interpretation. A realistic concern among the program committee members was to maintain our focus on the plurality of remembrance, that 2011 is more than a year to recall the American Civil War. We chose the theme because the calls made by the acts of commemoration are in fact a cacophony of voices. Their promises intended to imbue meaning into the remnants of the past and to teach histories that will guide us in building new beginnings. Reflective endings are the rhetoric of hope and the promise of something new. Two major American landmarks for remembrance were unveiled this summer. Each received planned press and much fanfare. They're both grand and aesthetically conceived creations inscribed with words on their surfaces and enveloped in love and hope. I'm referring to the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. National Memorial in Washington, D.C. and the 9-11 Memorial in New York City. These examples illustrate well the woven fabric made from emotion and history. One journalist wrote in response to the 9-11 Memorial, the memorial offers a quiet remembrance of the painful place where the nation's heart was broken. The skyscraper embodies our vitality and our determination not to let tragedy define who we are. As history workers, our responsibilities include shaping promises to the past. Each promise, each act of commemoration is shaped by our present culture, our present understanding of right and wrong, and our present understandings of the world. The promise of remembrance is the work of commemoration, the responsibility to mark and search for the meanings of our ancestors' achievements and afflictions. Their monuments and moments are the promise they left to us to build the next generation of beginnings. Together in our collective present at the time of the 150th anniversary of our nation's civil war and the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we're making promises for new beginnings. Inherent in the work of commemoration is a core promise that energizes our investigations and innovations in the work of history. In keeping with the conference theme, we are honored to have IMLS Director Susan Hildreth with us this morning. IMLS is charged in so many ways in helping to script our nation's narrative. On January 19, 2011, President Obama appointed Susan Hildreth to be Director of the Institute of Museum and Library Services. The directorship of the Institute alternates between individuals from the museum and library communities. Hildreth was the city librarian in Seattle before moving to Washington, D.C. For five years, she served as California's state librarian, a position to which she was appointed by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Previously, Hildreth was the San Francisco Public Library, um, where she served as deputy director and then city librarian. Her background also includes five years as deputy director at the Sacramento Public Library. 
For several years, she was at the Placer County's head librarian and for four years as library director in the Benicia Public Library, all in California. She began her career as a branch librarian at the Edson Township Library in New Jersey. Heldreth was active in the American Library Association, serving as president of the Public Library Association in 2006. She has a master's degree in library science from the State University of New York at Albany. We share that alma mater and a master's degree in business administration from Rutgers University, and a Bachelor of Arts cum laude from Syracuse University. Ladies and gentlemen, Susan Hildreth. Okay, for those of you out there from the California, uh, any California local historical societies, it's Placer County. Okay, Placer, the, the mother load. We love Placer County. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to, <clears throat> to be here today with all of you. Um, and I know um, what you do here uh, in all your local uh, venues and your states is so important. Um, the members of the association here do good work every day all over the country, preserving and providing access to the objects and environments that help us remember and reflect. And through that remembering and reflection, we will come to better understand our communities, our families, and ourselves. Truly, this important work and the institute, the important work that you do is wonderful, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services is honored to be a part of that work with you. Um, although I come to my um, honorable position from the library side of the house. I'm very dedicated to local history, state history, and our museums, and I'm doing the best I can to be a great steward for libraries and museums, and I really respect and appreciate the important work you're doing. I know that you and your institutions are facing great challenges just at the time when so many cultural heritage and memory institutions are seeking to adapt, and in some cases really remake collecting policies, programming, exhibitions, and interpretations, all to better serve a wide range of visitors and users. Support for even the very basic of our services has significantly eroded. It is tempting to postpone investment in our future, to make needed changes, to explore and to experiment to, and to some distant time when our funding will be increased, when we will have more staff, when the day-to-day -day does not seem quite so pressing. But I know that most of us in this room, particularly all of you who have prioritized coming to an event here from all your various venues, I think you know that we must continue to invest to make, needed, to make those needed changes to explore and experiment, especially during difficult times. We must do that now so that we can continue to share our compelling stories in a way that communicates with our changing communities. Because if we don't, we run the risk of being irrelevant even in the times when we might have more revenue to work with. And I think one of the key themes uh, of my term at IMLS, which is a fixed term, a four-year term, and, and then you'll get a new person to meet, um, making sure that libraries and museums are relevant in the 21st century and that we are uh, communicating with our constituencies both in person and also virtually is important. I had a chance to walk the exhibits today and I was really excited to see a number of vendors uh, focusing on how we can use mobile technology, which is the way of the world, to communicate better with all the folks who are interested in, in our past. So I encourage you to do that. Um, 
And granting agencies, I think, can fulfill a special role in this kind of a situation. We want to help institutions make model investments, model explorations, and model experiments from which we can all learn and respond to what we have learned. And this kind of investment is especially important when times are tough. You know, the IMLS is also undergoing some difficult fiscal times. We're hanging in there, but it's a challenge for many agencies in Washington. But I can assure you that we will use the resources we have allotted to us to our best of ability so that you can serve your communities effectively. In the last few years, IMLS has funded standards development for small to mid-sized history museums. I think they've been very impactful. A wide range of professional development activities and a large number of pro model projects designed to meet institutional needs in ways that carry broader impact. Now, at this meeting, we are very proud to sponsor a large gathering of grant recipients from our Connecting to Collections initiative, which is designed to build collaborative cross-institutional plans to address the major collections care issues identified by Heritage Preservation's Heritage Health Index. And we are very proud to say that at this convening, we have 47 states represented who have participated in these activities and two territories, Northern Mariana Islands and the Virgin Islands. So we believe we've really made an impact during our meeting on Wednesday, continuing through sessions on collections care throughout the conference and concluding with a discussion of statewide needs on Saturday morning. This special set of conversations will be invaluable for, for presenting new models of preservation policy, disaster planning, and tools and techniques for surveying preservation and community conservation needs. So we're really very proud of that work. Um, I would encourage you to visit our booth. We have information there about all our grant programs, and we have uh, our excited staff who are excited to meet you and help you with your proposals. We also have um, a, a brochure on an initiative that I think all of you might want to think a little bit about. This spring, we kicked off Let's Move Museums and Gardens uh, in cooperation and sponsorship with First Lady Michelle Obama. And we're really focusing on all the work that our museums and gardens and even local history centers do on making sure that we understand how important health is in terms of learning about our cultures and moving forward. So check this out. You can sign up on our website. It is not hard to do this at all. Please consider that. So again, I'm very glad uh, to be here with you. I'm not going to be able to stay too long. I have to run off to another conference in another state. But I know our staff is going to be here. And I'm very um, honored to be able to support uh, the work that all of you do. It is so important and so relevant in making sure that we learn from the past to be successful in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Really appreciate that. It was very interesting to hear from you, and we're glad you're here with us today at SLH meeting. Um, so many of you work in museums and understand what it means to be flexible when opportunity arises. Um, I, I was given um, the uh, 
the job of being the, the, the chairman of the program committee, and it was a wonderful opportunity. And one of my uh, tasks on the duty is to introduce the keynote. The keynote is, um, uh, we're very privileged to have um, Adam Goodhart with us today, and he comes to us because um, uh, of his outstanding work in the history field, um, but I can't take the credit for extending the invitation. Um, and I am flexible and happy to introduce <laughs> Dr. Paul Levengood, who's the director of the Virginia Historical Society. And he and I have um, really been thrilled to be able to, to chat with um, Mr. Goodhart and, and enjoy his book. And I have really had, had asked Paul, if, because he knows Adam so well, if he would be so kind as to introduce our keynote. Um, before I do, I just want to make an announcement that um, Adam's book, 1861, is for sale here at the, uh, at the uh, conference, and he will be doing a book signing immediately after this program in the lobby of the Marriott. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Levengood. Oh my goodness. Flexible is Julie's word. Indulgent would be my word in this. Um, welcome to Richmond, everyone. My first chance to see some of you, and I'm really pleased that you're here. Um, and I think Julie has done a great job putting together a wonderful program. I'll take a little bit of credit for this, this part of it, but everything else goes to her. And um, I did want to thank um, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, who did help underwrite uh, this session and several other of the sessions to make them open to the public, which is a great uh, thing for ASLH to do in this community. So VFH, I think I saw David Berenger out here somewhere. Thank you very, very much. Um, this is a really interesting introduction for me to do uh, because I introduce speakers all the time in my day job. Um, historians and archaeologists and social scientists, all sorts of people. But I am quite sure that this is the first time, especially to a group this size, I have introduced a speaker with whom I went to grade school with. <laughs> Adam Goodhart and I are both natives of Philadelphia and attended Germantown Friends School um, for many, many years together. And I will say that even though Adam and I were a grade removed, he was a year older than me, I always, um, I always had great admiration for his intellect. He was clearly destined to do great things. And I will share one just little anecdote about Adam and his family. Anybody from Philadelphia in the room? Okay. So this may not come as a surprise to you, um, but Adam's father, Bernard Goodhart, was a judge in Philadelphia for many, many years. And you could not turn on the local news on February 14th without seeing Adam's dad and seeing scenes from Adam's dad's courtroom. Now, these were not a perp walk of someone being led into the room or led out of the room for some terrible thing that they had done. No, these images would be people getting married. Because you might be able to imagine this, there's a great deal of cachet in having your marriage certificate on February 14th signed by someone named Judge Good Hart. <laughs> but it's an, enduring, it's an enduring memory for me and anybody who grew up in my era in Philadelphia to, uh, to uh, think about the Good Hart name. And it's a, certainly a wonderful thing for your family to be known for. Now, as I mentioned, Adam always seemed destined for great things. When we were in school, he was translating and reading the uh, Thucydides and Herodotus from the original Greek. This was someone who clearly, from a young age, had a deep engagement with history and an extremely sharp mind. Now, he went on to Harvard after uh, our time together at Germantown Friends and uh, graduated from Harvard with many, with many honors. He then went into a career in journalism 
and he wrote for a vast array of publications from the Atlantic to National Geographic to the Wall Street Journal and as he pointed out to me yesterday to Playboy magazine. So clearly a polymath and uh, a man of many interests. Now I always found his journalistic output to be always deeply enmeshed in his subject. He did lots of research and so He's always been a historian at heart, even when he was a journalist. And now he is a little bit more formally a historian, as well as doing many other things. In 2006, Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, named Adam the Hodson Trust Griswold, director of the CV Star for the Study of the American Experience, an interdisciplinary institute. And so while he's holding this position, he's also uh, maintaining a very active publication and speaking rec uh, uh, schedule. You'll see him around the country. You'll hear him on. NPR and other places, and you will read him regularly in the New York Times. Um, if you are not familiar with the Disunion blog on the New York Times, which documents the Civil War day by day, um, it is a must read. It is extraordinary, and Adam has been one of the most prolific contributors to that. So I recommend it to you, as I also recommend his recent book, 1861, which is among the best things I've ever seen on the first days, uh, or the days leading up and the first days of the Civil War. <clears throat> so I guess it's perhaps trite to call him a public intellectual, but I do that with all respect for how important public intellectuals are in our society. And I see him very much in the work he does at Washington College and the work he does making sure that history is accessible to the public. I see him as a kindred spirit for AASLH, and I think it's extraordinarily appropriate for him to be here, and I invite you to join me in welcoming him to the stage. Adam Goodhart. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for that ancient history. And I'm not talking about Thucydides and Herodotus. Um, no, it's, uh, it's really great to, to be here. Um, you know, it's so much easier to get to Richmond than it was for McClellan and Grant. Have you noticed that today? Um, and actually, the last time I was, I was here was the very first week that my book was published. It had come out just a few days before. I'd been running around sort of up and down the East Coast doing appearances and, and interviews and whatnot. And at the very end of this exhausting week, I fought my way down I-95 from Philadelphia all the way down here to Richmond, um, arrived at the very last minute at a long scheduled bookstore event, um, and entered to find just a lovely, thoughtful, responsive, attentive audience, all six of them. <laughs> so, oh, and then I left the bookstore afterwards to find a $75 ticket on my car. <laughs> I, I hope I paid that. My car may be getting impounded as we speak. Um, anyway, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here and to look out and see a few more people than six in the, in the audience. Um, it's also a particular honor um, for me to, to be here because as I think you're, you're about to hear, um, I am a great proponent of the idea that, to paraphrase the late great Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, all history is local. Um, and there are so many people I've met already here who are doing exciting things with local history. In fact, my journey into 1861, both the year and the book, really began not at Fort Sumter, not at Bull Run, but almost literally in my own backyard 
in a place that might seem remote from the main action of the Civil War, the attic of an old house on the eastern shore of Maryland in a rural corner near where Washington College is where I, where I teach. Now, as a teacher as well as, as a writer, I'm a great believer in the idea that in order to understand the past, you really have to travel to it. In other words, you have to walk the ground where history feels very present and seek something that I think might be called the eloquence of places in speaking about the past. Now, it's actually easy to find that out on the eastern shore of Maryland. How many of you have been to the eastern shore before? Oh, fantastic. Okay, because I usually say eastern shore and people think it's like Ocean City or something like that. But So those of you who have been there know that it's this sort of wonderful backwater of America, sort of like at Nantucket or the Sea Islands, a place that time forgot with old colonial towns and tidal waterways and crumbling manor houses that have been in the same families for centuries. In fact, I always say that on the eastern shore of Maryland, either you got here in 1658 or you got here in 2003, as, as I did. Um, so almost every spring, I load a dozen or so of my students into a minibus and uh, I, you know, I like my class sizes to be just the right size to fit in a minibus um, for many practical and, and intellectual reasons. Um, and we head out together to a place that's got even more history to it than most places on the Eastern Shore. Extraordinarily deep history. It's an old plantation, an old farm that's been the same family for over 350 years, 13 generations of this family have been there. And it's a crumbling manor house that's been mostly unoccupied for, uh, for decades. So I take my students in the little minibus, we go down a long country road, then we turn down this sort of even uh, lonelier, long dirt driveway overhung with vine-covered trees. And I always say to them as we turn into the driveway, fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen, we are now leaving the 21st century. And in this old house called Poplar Grove in Queen Anne's County, Maryland, um, in the attic are or were tons and tons and tons of family papers. And I'd seen them before, I'd poked around in them a little bit, but not really explored them. And I knew that the family felt very strongly about keeping the papers undisturbed in the house where they had been for, for so many centuries. But on one particular trip several years ago, um, I had a student who became very curious about those papers, a student named Jim Shelberg. He happened to be a very persistent student. Those of you who teach will know what I mean. Jim perhaps is even more dogged than, than usual because he's actually a Marine veteran of combat missions to Iraq and Afghanistan. So when he decides to go for something, he really doesn't take no for an answer. Jim was very interested, is very interested in, in military history, as you, might, as you might imagine. And we'd heard a story through the oral history of this family that something unusual had happened in the spring of 1861. That there was a family member who was an officer in the US Army and who had to decide and went through an agonizing decision over which side he was going to take in the emerging conflict and that he may have even sort of switched horses midstream in the process of making this, this decision. 
This was just the sort of the oral tradition of the, of the family. But this persistent student, Jim, decided that he wanted to write his term paper about it. And he said, I want to write my term paper about this using the papers in this attic. Wow, so I said, okay, okay, Jim, now let's just step back for a second. Well, first of all, it's about 150 degrees in this attic. It was the end of the spring semester. Second of all, these papers are just, they're stuffed into old peach baskets and steamer trunks and lard cans and just willy-nilly. And, you know, it eventually turned out when we went through them in more depth, there were 30,000 pages in that attic. And they ranged from land grants from the 1660s to canceled checks from the 1960s to the instructions for a washing machine from 1837. I thought I was bad about getting rid of my old, you know, warranty cards and things like that for appliances that no longer exist. So I said, you know, there is no guarantee that you're going to find in all these generations of the family anything about this guy. And, they, and of course, like all these old families, they would have like 15 children in a generation. There's no guarantee you'll find anything about this guy, let alone anything about this story from 1861. Jim said, I don't care. I want to do it. Okay, fine. I'll come back with you for two or three hours on Saturday morning. We'll look around. And if we don't find anything, you're going to have to switch to a new term, pa term paper topic. So we came back, we started digging, and uh, the first thing we found, actually no, one of the, I think the first thing we found actually was an X-rated poem from 1810. <laughs> Said, look, a, a poem, started reading it aloud. Oh my, oh my. Um, fortunately, Jim was uh, in the Marine Corps, so nothing, nothing shocks him. But um, I think the thing that we found right after that was a thick bundle of letters tied up in a yellow silk ribbon that clearly hadn't been undone in more than a century. And written on the outside were the words, Colonel William H. Emery's letters regarding his resignation from the US Army, 1861. <laughs> Whoa. So <laughs> I handed this packet to Jim, and I said, Jim, one thing you should know it's not always this easy. <laughs> so, inside was this remarkable series of, of letters, private letters, written that spring, um, involving this, uh, this Colonel Emery, who was a career officer in the US Army, stationed out in deep Indian territory in what's now Oklahoma. And hearing these contradictory reports from back east about what was going on, and trying to decide where to cast his, his lot, he was very torn because on the one hand, like many people on the eastern shore of Maryland then and now, he considered himself a proud southerner. He considered himself also, um, well, he, was, he had grown up in a slaveholding family, um, although he said after the war that he had always harbored deep doubts and, and misgivings about, about slavery. Um, he also had personal ties to the Confederacy. He was a close friend of Jefferson Davis. His son was even living with the Davis family at the time that the war began. He had been at West Point with Robert E. Lee, a man a few years older whom he really looked up to and, and admired. Um, but could he betray the flag that he had been serving, the Stars and Stripes, ever since he was a 14-year-old cadet taking the oath at West Point? That was the great question. And 
I found the remarkable thing for me was that for this officer, besides wrestling with these big ideas, big political ideas, moral ideas, freedom and, sl and slavery and national loyalty, he was also thinking about all kinds of personal things, not just these family ties and ties of, of friendship, but also he was thinking about what would it mean for his future, for his family's future. One son living with the Davis family, another son at West Point. Each ended up fighting on opposite sides in the Civil War, these two brothers. What would it mean for his future career? And he's writing back and forth to his, to his wife. And, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about this. His wife actually, um, I think like many uh, husbands and wives, many spouses in any period, was very pragmatic about the whole thing. Even though she was actually a northerner. She was the great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin, no less, Philadelphian. But she was actually very pragmatic. She said, well, dear, you know, if you think that it would be good for you to sort of join up with this new, uh, this new Confederate rep Republic, I'm, I'm cool with that. And so he's saying, well, if I do this, will I become a founding father of this new nation, much as my grandparents' generation were, are hailed today as founding fathers and patriots? Or will I literally be strung up from a tree as a traitor? And his wife wrote in one of the letters, she said, it is like a great game of chance. And that phrase really jumped off the page and, and grabbed me. It's like a great game of chance because it brought alive for me a moment when the Civil War was not a fait accompli, when all of the mud and the blood and the sacrifice and the, and the pain was something unguessed at, when it wasn't yet a war that was being fought on a few hilltops in Tennessee and in a few cornfields in Virginia and Pennsylvania, but something that was being fought within thousands of American communities, millions of American families, and millions of individual American hearts and minds. Now, as it turned out, um, I didn't end up writing this colonel's story beyond just a couple of paragraphs in my book, in that funny way that sometimes with the alchemy of writing, there can be something that serves as, as the germ of an idea, but sort of like the, the grain of sand in an oyster, that it's something that ends up being very small in the whole story. But I did, find, I did set out, and in fact, I think that story really should be my student Jim's to write fully someday. He gave me permission to, to use it in my book, incidentally, I asked him. But I did set out to find other stories um, of people who had struggled in this way, who had faced this moment of national crisis, sometimes with heroism, sometimes with cowardice, always with uncertainty about the future, and to recreate that moment in my book of, of teetering uncertainty. Now, I think like almost anyone who loves American history, um, I've always been fascinated by the Civil War, probably ever since that eighth grade field trip to, uh, to uh, Gettysburg from the school that Paul and I both attended. Did you have that field trip too, Paul? Yep. Mrs. Ruff, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, at, at Gettysburg, um, they, have, they had that electric map, remember that thing? Where there was this sort of 1950s voice that would intone um, 
and the Confederacy attacked Little Round Top. And then you would see these red lights going boop, 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 boop. And then the voice would say, and the Union counterattacked. And the blue lights would go boop, 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 boop. And, you know, that was the kind of history that just, it never really appealed to me. Um, <laughs> you, may be, you may be wondering. <laughs> um, it's, uh, I, I can never keep straight in my mind, in fact, um, who attacked and who counterattacked at Little Round Top. Maybe some of you are in the audience saying, no, no, it was the Union that attacked and the Confederacy that counterattacked. Anyway, um, it was, it's sort of the approach that um, you know, the, the great historian of slavery, David Bryan Davis, um, described this as treating the Civil War like a great military Super Bowl contest between blue and gray heroes. Um, which was the approach of a lot of books I saw to the Civil War, whose cavalry went charging over which hill. Or else, on the, on the other hand, a lot of the academic history, I have to say, didn't satisfy me, because it seemed equally sort of schematic. Um, treated American so uh, society as a collection of these broadly defined groups, the North, the South, the Blacks, the Whites, all mathematically sort of marching in lockstep to the series of ideological and sociological rules. But either way, it was a kind of a history channel view from 30,000 feet up of arrows moving across a great, a great map. Now, I think actually as historians, um, we're all often compelled to summarize, to schematize, and to explain for our readers, for our visitors, for, for the broader public. And I think that's especially a compulsion with the Civil War. Um, we're constantly hearing arguments about whether the Civil War was about slavery, or the Civil War was about saving the Union, as if any war, especially a Civil War, can be about any one thing. It's something that we see in our own times, and the Civil Wars that are being played out that we see every day in, in Libya, in Yemen, and elsewhere. And so I think that we know from our own time that that's not so. And in fact, I would argue that as a, as a historian, as historians, um, with all due respect to Henry David Thoreau's famous exhortation, simplify, simplify, I would argue that the historian's job is to complicate, complicate. And I think that, in fact, nuance and complication can be their own explanation. They can be their own powerful argument. And in fact, we know from our own lives that history, that experiences come to us sort of, not in neat lines, but as sort of a barrage of experiences kind of whizzing at our heads from all directions at once that we're trying to make sense of. We're never sure which will be significant, which won't, and what they'll mean. Now, to be sure, once in a while, there's an event that blazes up amidst all of this confusion and is something that we know, even at that moment, is history with a capital H, something awful and majestic. Now, I think we've all seen that in our own times with the experience of 9-11, whose anniversary we just commemorated. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I came out onto 15th Street. I was about a mile north of the, of the White House, a couple miles farther from the Pentagon, and just 
stood there amidst a crowd of neighbors and strangers as we looked and we saw this column of smoke like the biblical pillar of fire rising from the burning Pentagon. And we stood asking ourselves and asking one another what it all meant, being sure of nothing but that everything was about to, to change. It did turn out that everything changed. In fact, the attacks on New York and Washington hadn't simply changed the course of future history. They also, in a sense, changed the past. They shook up the old categories, the old assumptions. Um, it rewrote our explanations of what had happened before as much as rewriting our expectations of what was to come. For a brief moment, in a way both thrilling and terrifying, everything and anything seemed possible. Now, Fort Sumter in April 1861 was, I believe, America's first 9-11 moment. Uh, it was a moment when thousands of Americans stood on rooftops around Charleston Harbor looking as we looked 10 years ago at that pillar of smoke rising from the Pentagon, looking at the smoke billowing from the burning Fort Sumter, so much so that one observer said it was if a volcano had risen and erupted in the middle of Charleston Harbor. And of course, the, the remarkable and, and chilling thing is that um, instead of, of mourning, as we did on 9-11, uh, most of these throngs were cheering. And when the American flag finally toppled from its flagstaff, hit by a stray Confederate shot and dis disappearing into the roiling smoke, Cheers broke out from the rooftops of, of Charleston, something I find chilling to read even, even today. And besides those watching thousands, millions more experienced that moment through what we might call the new media of the 1860s. April 1861 was the first time in American history, in fact, I think probably the first time in world history, that an entire nation experienced an epical event unfolding almost in unison and nearly in what we would call today real time. Back in 1775, it taken weeks for the so-called shot heard round the world to travel even through the, the colonies, let alone to the rest of the, of the world. But now, thanks to the rapid spread of the telegraph in just the past decade, a spread that was actually quicker than the spread of the internet in our own times in the 1850s, the echoes of that first shot at Sumter reverberated from Minnesota to Florida and beyond. On the night of, April, of Friday, April 12, 1861, Walt Whitman was attending the opera in New York. And after the show, he strolled back towards his home in, in Brooklyn when he heard the shrill cries of newsboys ahead of him tearing down Broadway. Soon, every gaslight along the street had its own little huddle of New Yorkers pouring over the latest dispatches, the extra editions reporting on the news from Charleston. That news, Walt, Walt Whitman would later remember, ran through the land as if by electric nerves. From Fort Kearney in the Nebraska Territory, the westernmost point of the telegraph lines, a Pony Express rider immediately galloped off toward California with the news. But Americans experienced the Civil War in unison only in the sort of limited temporal sense of that term. Each person, each American experienced the conflict and indeed the lead up to the conflict, which is which about half my book 
is about in a different way. And what I tried to do in my, in my writing was to capture the complications, the nooks, the crannies, the folds of the story through the specificity and the complications of, of individual experience. Now, I'm going to share with you um, three stories from 1861, um, three stories about different places, different people. And uh, they're actually, they're all stories that relate in one way or another to slavery. Um, and I chose them because slavery is something that I think is so often simplified. I was having a conversation with, about this with someone just out in the lobby before this talk. Slavery is something that I think all of us feel compelled to, to simplify, to explain, but I think is often best understood when it's, when it's specific. Um, it's going to be, I'm going to read three sections. The first couple will be about five minutes each, and then the last uh, story will be slightly longer before I wrap up. And I hope we'll have time for, uh, for a couple of questions at the end, we'll see. The first story. Washington, January 1861. It might have seemed an unusual transaction, hardly in the common line of business for a big auction house like Green and Williams with its commodious premises just off Pennsylvania Avenue, halfway between the White House and the Capitol. The partnership stock and trade ran more to real estate furniture, kitchenware. These were the sorts of valuables that the capital city's transient denizens often left behind as the ever-revolving wheel of congressional elections and presidential administrations, the waxing and waning of political parties, regularly returned large numbers of inhabitants to the far-flung provinces from which they had so recently arrived. Still, the potential commission on this sale was tempting, since it might well prove substantial. A Negro male just past the prime of life could fetch $1,000, the price of a modest house and lot in the city, and the one now on offer was no common field hand but a first-rate house servant. If a sharp-eyed speculator or two attended the sale, the price might go even higher. Shipped down to the New Orleans market, this fellow could bring as much as 1500 or close to it, even if his eventual master only intended to put him to work cutting sugarcane. A newcomer to Washington that winter might have been surprised, even shocked, to see a slave put on the block here in broad daylight. This was, after all, 1861. Hadn't the slave trade in the District of Columbia been abolished more, more than a decade before as part of the Compromise of 1850? Indeed, it had been heralded at the time as the South's most important concession to the North. For decades, abolitionists had been wailing about the, the moral stain of human traffic here in the capital of the Republic. Their propaganda broadsides had shown coffles of black men and women shackled together being marched past the dome of the capital itself. Now all that was supposed to be a thing of the past. Few people, at least outside of Washington, noticed that the 1850 law did not actually prohibit slave trading itself. It simply banned anyone from bringing Negroes into the District of Columbia for the purpose of selling them out of state. That took care of those embarrassing coffles. Washington would no longer be a major entrepot for Negroes being shipped off to the slave-hungry cotton belt from the overstocked Chesapeake region. But it was still perfectly legal 
for a Washingtonian to put his house servant up for public auction and even to advertise the offering, as Green and Williams did in the pages of the Daily National Intelligencer, the city's leading newspaper and a semi-official chronicle of congressional proceedings. If the unlucky slave happened to turn up the following week in one of the Alexandria slave pens right across the Potomac, ready to be packed onto a New Orleans-bound schooner, well, that too was perfectly within the law. The Negro coming up for sale on this particular occasion was a 33-year-old man named Willis. Selling him might even be called a prestige transaction for Green and Williams, which, though large, was by no means known as one of the more genteel auction houses in the capital. For this slave had been, as the firm boasted in its advertisement, the valued property of the late Honorable Judge George M. Bibb, deceased, one of the district's most distinguished longtime residents. The courtly white-haired Judge Bibb, known also, depending on whom you spoke to, as Chancellor Bibb, Senator Bibb, Secretary Bibb, had been a fixture of Washington politics and society ever since his arrival as a young senator from Kentucky during President Madison's first term. As his respectful obituaries noted, he had been at various times United States Attorney, Secretary of the Treasury under President Tyler, and after retiring from government service and taking up practice as a leading Washington attorney, a habitué of the U.S. Supreme Court chamber. In his politics, the late judge had been admirably moderate, both a pro-slavery man and a union man in the hallowed tradition of his native Virginia. His most notable speech in the Senate had been back in 1833, when South Carolina had threatened to secede over nullification. My voice is still for peace, Bibb sonorously began, and then spent three and a half hours professing his belief in peace and the Union, the Union and peace. A speech so worthy and so boring one newspaper noted that by the time it concluded, every living creature in the Senate chamber, with the exception of the satisfied orator himself, had either fallen asleep or fled. <laughs> this is not to say that the late Judge Bibb had been a drab figure. Indeed, he was well known around town for his distinctive ways. Until the end of his life, he clung steadfastly to the fashions of Thomas Jefferson's day, silk stockings, buckled knee breeches, and a ruffled white cravat. People saw him sighed sentimentally, and knew beyond all doubt that they were gazing upon a true gentleman of the old school. The judge was an accomplished musician. His Georgetown neighbors were used to strolling past his fine brick house on a warm evening and hearing the strains of his violin through the open study windows. Then one spring, the violin was heard no more. As for Willis the Negro, he had been for some years the old gentleman's trusted body servant. It had been he who neatly laid out the silk stockings and knee breeches every morning, who put the violin away in its case, who shaved the grizzled jowls and attended face faithfully by the bed during his master's final illness. On the afternoon of the funeral, it was he who prepared refreshments for the distinguished mourners gathered in the judge's parlor, including President Buchanan and most of his cabinet. Perhaps it was a bit unseemly for a fine family like the Bibbs to advertise their loyal household retainer in the public prints 
and then to make poor Willis stand on the block in that shabby auction house as Meshers, Green, and Williams hovered assiduously, pointing out his finer qualities to whoever cared to look. As a man approaching middle age, Willis may well have had a wife and children, perhaps members of the district's large free Negro community who would be heartbroken if he were sold south. But then, what use had the widow bib for a gentleman's valet? Manumission was out of the question. Had not the late judge himself often declared his staunch opposition to the practice, declaring free blacks a nuisance to society? There were estate taxes to think of, too. The deceased had left no fewer than 17 children, and how, pray tell, was a Negro to be divided 17 ways? Wasn't the sale perfectly legal? Wouldn't the good people of Washington, in any event, Forget the matter quickly, remembering the late Honorable George M. Bibb only as a, selfish, a selfless public servant, a kindly neighbor, an honest gentleman. Money, in the end, was money. So the advertisement appeared in the Intelligencer for one Negro man named Willis, about 33 years of age, and a slave for life. Below that, a shorter line of type, also one gold watch. So that's the first story. And uh, perhaps I'll skip ahead to the third, actually, since I have less time than I expected to, uh, to talk. It probably went on a little bit longer in my introductions I'd expected to. This is a story um, a little bit longer than the first one about, it, it's actually after the war has, has begun, in the very first weeks of the war. And this is a story about slavery drawing to its, to its close, drawing towards its close. It's a Virginia story, which is why I particularly wanted to tell it. Hampton Roads, Virginia, May 1861. This was where it had all begun. Here, where the river washed into the Great Bay, a place as freighted with the heavy past as anywhere in the still young country, a place of Indian bones and deep cellared manor houses and the armor of King James's men rusting away beneath the dark soil. Time itself seemed to move here like that tidal river, its ambivalent currents stirred first upstream, then down. By night from the water, the sharp-edged silhouette of the federal fort might seem to soften and sink, becoming again the low palisades that the first colonists had raised on the same spot two and a half centuries ago. The Navy steamship, moored in the fort's lee, might raise its black hull into the form of a bygone man of war. History recorded that in the late summer of 1619, a Dutch corsair under an English captain had come from the south and anchored at Point Comfort. On this promontory at the mouth of the James, 30 miles downstream from their fledgling capital, the Virginia colonists had built a lookout point and trading post that they called Fort Algernon. John Rolfe, Pocahontas's widower, recounted the ship's arrival in a letter. The corsair, he wrote, brought not anything but 20 and odd Negroes. Two and a half centuries later, there were four million descendants of Africans held in slavery on these shores. But now, on a spring night in 1861, three of them 
were making their way across those same waters toward the fort at Point Comfort, and this time to freedom. This is how it would all end. The three men who crossed the James River to the fort that night, Frank Baker, Shepard Mallory, and James Townsend, had been enslaved field hands on a farm outside Hampton, a quiet country seat on the north bank of the river. Then the war came. Like so many other Americans at that moment, the men unexpectedly faced a new set of challenges and decisions. The tranquil rural landscape they had known suddenly blazed with activity. Seemingly overnight, it emerged as one of the most strategically important regions in the entire Confederacy, especially since its shoreline bordered on the expanse of water at the mouth of the James, known as Hampton Roads. One of the greatest natural harbors on Earth, this estuary commanded direct water routes to the capitals of both belligerents, the James Highway to Richmond and the Chesapeake Bay Highway to Washington. It would be repeatedly contested in the years to come, most famously in the 1862 naval battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack. As the war opened, Hampton Roads and its surroundings were dominated by one of the few military strongholds in the South that the federal government had managed to keep, Fortress Monroe, which sat at the tip of Point Comfort, a mile or so from the town of Hampton. The Confederates, too, were hurriedly marshalling forces in the area. And one of their leaders happened to be Colonel Charles King Mallory, county judge, commander of the local militia, and master of the three nocturnal fugitives, Baker, Mallory, and Townsend. Gallant as they may have been, the defenders of Southern rights and Southern homes were not exactly ready for a full-scale engagement with the enemy. The militiamen's previous duties had consisted largely of standing guard on local pilot boats to prevent fugitive Negroes from escaping. Instead, they joined the several thousand other Virginia troops already dispersed throughout the area, busily setting up camps, digging entrenchments, and building gun platforms. Or rather, the Virginia militiamen were supervising the building of entrenchments and gun platforms. The actual hard labor was being performed by local slaves pressed into service. Soon, indeed, Confederate authorities required every slaveholder in the three nearest counties to offer at least half his able-bodied hands for military use. Our Negroes will do the shoveling, while our brave Cavaliers will do the fighting, a Richmond newspaper said. Baker, Mallory, and Townsend had accompanied their master across the James to Sewell's Point, where directly opposite Fortress Monroe, the Confederates were constructing a military emplacement amid the dunes. The three men labored with picks and shovels beneath the regimental banner of the 115th Virginia Militia, a blue flag bearing a golden motto, give me liberty or give me death. After a week or so of this, however, they learned some deeply unsettling news. Their master was planning to send them even farther from home to help build Confederate fortifications in North Carolina. They were bidding farewell to the area where they had spent most, if not all, of their lives. Moreover, two of them, probably Baker and Townsend, the elder members of the trio, had wives and children on the opposite side of the river. If they went south away from their master's immediate supervision, into the hands of unknown military authorities, and in the direction that all slaves dreaded most, would they ever see their families again? Just four miles across the water, in the direction of their home and their families, sat Fortress Monroe.
It must have been a familiar sight to them, especially since Colonel Mallory had a house in the shadow of its ramparts on the outskirts of Hampton. Indeed, it's quite possible they had been inside the fort already in peacetime. Now, of course, their master, along with all the other loyal Confederates, considered it enemy territory. That was when the three, the three slaves decided to choose their own allegiance, and they joined the Union. All it took was one small boat. With Confederate officers frequently coming and going across the James, there must have been plenty such vessels at Sewell's Point. On the night of May 23rd, Baker, Mallory, and Townsend slipped down to the beach and rowed stealthily away. As they drew nearer to Hampton, they must have heard distant shouts and commotion. It was the day Virginians had voted to ratify the Ordinance of Secession, and here the citizens of the newly independent state were celebrating. The fugitive's timing may have been no coincidence either. Colonel Mallory had served as his county's delegate to the secession convention, and it's hard to believe that on the big night he would have stayed to swat sand flies by the campfire at Sewell's Point. Perhaps he was in town rejoicing at his state's self-liberation when his three slaves spied a chance to self-liberate as well. Still, it cannot have been an easy decision for the men. What kind of treatment would they meet with at the fort? If the federal officers sent them back, would they be punished as runaways, perhaps even as traitors? Even if they were allowed to remain inside, might this leave their families exposed to Colonel Mallory's retribution? How and when would they ever reunite with their loved ones? But the choice was theirs to make, and they made it. Approaching the high stone walls, they hailed a uniformed picket guard and were admitted within the gates of Fortress Monroe. Now, I think I'll actually stop reading there because uh, we're somewhat running out of, run, running out of time. Um, of course, these slaves were the first three Americans to become known as contrabands, slaves to be declared contrabands of war, first by the general in charge of the fort, General Benjamin Butler, and then by the Lincoln administration. And they would soon be, soon be joined by, by many more. The day after their escape, eight more fugitives would come to Fort Monroe. The day after that, there would be 47, and soon there would be hundreds and even thousands pouring into the federal lines anywhere that there were federal lines in the South. By the time that Lincoln unveiled the Emancipation Proclamation, although figures are hard to come by, it may even have been hundreds of thousands, to the point where, and this is one of my favorite snippets from the, from the book, on the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was announced, a Union officer was walking across Lafayette Square opposite the White House and ran into William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, and congratulated Seward on this, on this great history-making act that the Lincoln administration had just, had just taken. And Seward snorted at him, and he said, yes, we have let a puff of wind over an established fact. And the officer asked, what do you mean, Mr. Seward? I mean, the Secretary of State replied, that the Emancipation Proclamation was uttered in the first gun fired at Fort Sumter, and we have been the last to hear it. So it's those kinds of individual stories that I think need to be told in, in making up the Civil War. Um, finally, before I close as a, as a coda to that last story, I want to briefly circle back to the idea that I began with. 
idea, I think, is central to the enterprise that all of us in this room are involved in, and that's the idea of the eloquence of places. Now, this morning, as we sit here, literally as I speak, just down the James River at what's now known not as Fortress, but Fort Monroe, the spot, that spot where American slavery began and the slavery where it received its death blow, the fort is being decommissioned by the U.S. Army in a ceremony so that for the first time in 400 years, almost continuous years, it will cease to be a military installation. And its future is still very uncertain. It's still a place that I think few people outside the Hampton Roads area have ever heard of. And still I think it's worth remembering that many of America's great historic icons spent decades or even centuries languishing in the shadows. The Liberty Bell was once slated to be sold as scrap metal. And it was only saved because it actually would have cost more to haul away than the scrap metal was worth. So they left it in a dusty corner of Independence Hall. The bus, more recently, the bus on which Rosa Parks took her famous stand against segregation was left literally rusting in an Alabama cornfield being used to store lumber and old tools until just about 10 years ago. And I think that the importance of Fort Monroe is such that it deserved to, to take its place alongside such, such icons. There's talk of its being declared a national monument by President Obama sometime in the next few weeks. It would be the, his first time using the Antiquities Act to declare a national monument. On the other hand, there's also talk of adaptive reuse that has many local people and historians somewhat alarmed. In fact, just a few days ago, the local newspaper reported that there was a new director of what's called the Fort Monroe Authority in charge of managing the transition to um, private use. And this gentleman was quoted as saying, on September 15th, so today, in the afternoon, you will see real estate signs on the property. I approve the location of commercial real estate signs to go up on the 15th in targeted locations. I have a marketable product to put on the market on September 15th. Early in his presidency, President Obama, who's now deliberating about the future of this site, visited Cape Coast Castle in Ghana, a fortress where, as you know, Many thousands of, um, of African slaves once awaited transportation across the Middle Passage to America. Obama had actually followed in the footsteps of Presidents Clinton and Bush, who had both visited Gore Island, a similar site in, in Senegal. And President Obama spoke there of the evocative power of this place of sadness and hope, a beacon of the courage that would, he said, abolish slavery and ultimately win civil rights for all people. Fort Monroe, I think, is America's own Cape Coast castle or Gore Island. Indeed, it's more than that, for here liberty as well as slavery began. Here, indeed, African-American history began. I hope it's a place where many future generations can come face to face with the American paradox of liberty and slavery with the complications of both the past and the present. And in the meantime, as we await a decision on its future, I'd like to salute all of those here who do so much in their own towns and cities and states to make places speak eloquently, to bring to life the millions of individual experiences that together constitute the past and to complicate 
complicate, complicate. Thank you. Thanks. And I don't know if we have time for uh, literally two quick questions before we, before we adjourn. Yes, sir. Yes. Having ancestors who fought in the Civil War on either side or visited Gettysburg, like you did and I did. And I'm interested in your thoughts about how to engage uh, this uh, very diverse and different country that we have now than we had uh, 50 years ago. Well, I think that, you know, with the Civil War, we really don't have to struggle to get people interested in it. And I said yesterday at the, at the CEO's forum, I think that uh, we have to embrace the arguments. Um, history in this country is, it's the thing that we all have in common. We don't share religious identity. We, we don't share ethnic identity. What we have is a common story. And it's our language. It's our common language that we use to talk about the present. So I think rather than I think some people are uncomfortable with what might lead to a sort of a presentist view of history, we have to actually give people space to use history to talk about the uh, to talk about the present. So I would uh, I would embrace that complication as well. I think you're absolutely right that our country has changed. In fact, Ira Berlin, the great historian of slavery, um, notes that uh, there are now there have been more Africans immigrating to America since the end of slavery than there were during the entire time of the Middle Passage. So yes, the country is changing, but I think the stories will always be things that we have in common. It's why I actually dedicated this book to my, to my grandmother, who was a Jewish immigrant from Eastern Europe. My, uh, my family were not in America during the Civil War. They were knocking around you know, Poland or Lithuania, probably not thinking much about the Union and the Confederacy, whatever else they had on their minds at the time. But I dedicated to her, and I said, who made America's history ours too, because I truly believe that all of us inherit um, both the good and, and the bad. As Americans. One more question. If there is one more question. Okay, uh, yes. No, and I tried. I actually spent a very frustrating day in the District of Columbia archives. Any of you have ever dug in the District of Columbia archives? My gosh. <laughs> wow. At one point they said, well, it may be up in the attic somewhere. And they, they actually, they do have records of, of the chattel sales, in theory at least, but that volume um, could not be produced. And so finally I decided to let his, let his fate remain unknown, which may in fact be better for the story. Okay, so uh, thanks to all of you, and uh, I will be just across the street signing books and having individual discussions with any of you who would, who would like. Thank you.
Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you, Paul. And thank you so much, Adam, for being our speaker. Um, I also want to um, acknowledge and thank um, Claudia French, who's here from IMLS. She is um, director of museum portion of IMLS, and she's here with us today. And if you'd like to meet her, she's sitting right here in the front. So thank you, Claudia, for being with us. Appreciate that. Um, one session that did not make it into the program that I'd like to bring to your attention is moderated by Erin Carlson Mass called Lights, Camera, History, Media in History. And it'll be held today at 4 o'clock in Salon Number 1. The panelists include Brian Falk with the American Film Company, the producers of the film The Conspirator. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure to have you part of our conference. Enjoy the rest of the days. Thank you so much.